I want people to understand what I'm beginning to understand. And of course, everybody's different. Not everybody's identical. But for me, this idea that I just whip myself with a stick all the time, all the time. And I just mm -hmm. don't have that ability to say, you know, to be my own friend. You do. Okay. Right. So right but I perceive yeah, but, that. Yeah. yeah, but listen. I want to hear this. Yes. It's not can't, it's won't. And I always say that to my clients. Right. It's not that you can't, it's that you're not willing to. So you've got to work on that. I'm Ilaria Baldwin. And I'm Alec Baldwin. And this is our podcast, What's One More? Hey, everyone. Welcome back to What's One More? Today, we are delving deeper into discussing OCD not only to learn more about this condition, but also to do our part at destigmatizing mental health. Our guest is Allegra Castens, a licensed marriage and family therapist who specializes in OCD and other anxiety disorders. Her passion for OCD stems from her own experience with the disorder. Her background is incredibly extensive. She received her master's degree in clinical psychology from Pepperdine University, and her clinical work focuses on cognitive behavioral therapy, exposure and response prevention, acceptance and commitment therapy, and mindfulness skills training for adults, adolescents, and children. We all have something we are struggling with, and sharing our battles gives others the opportunity to better understand and thus support us. It also destigmatizes and thus demystifies the health of our mind, hopefully encouraging more people to seek help and feel less alone. Here is our conversation with Allegra. How are you today? I'm good. How are you really feeling right now? How are you feeling today? A lot better than yesterday. You were. Now, why? OCD. T describe. Mm -hmm. I'm, we'll, we'll, we'll share. We'll do dueling OCD <laughs> diaries. Just got Dear diary, what happened? <laughs> it got really loud over the last week, and I haven't been used to that in a while. Got really loud how? A lot of just like intrusive thoughts that stuck, just were like very sticky. And yeah, it just, it felt more anxiety provoking right. than it has in years. I find that there are days when... And I believe I have no choice. And this is the greatest challenge for me, really, as an individual, or I should say among the greatest challenges. I want to, I'm trying to choose my words carefully here. <laughs> and that is that among the greatest challenges is to look at a day and say, I'm going to do my best and try to get this done. And if I don't, I don't. Yeah. Because I give myself a lot to do. I was telling Ilaria we, we were before we were, when we were prepping for this that, I mean, to me, OCD in my own life is self-abuse. For those of us who, who don't know, who are learning, Alec and I feel, I feel like we are very new to this conversation. When people hear OCD, we often think, oh, that's organized or hand-washing yeah. or germophobia. And what I'm learning is that it really is this intrusive thoughts and it's the shifting things around, the stacking, the hand-washing, the germophobia that is the way of trying to make those intrusive thoughts go away. Is that the fair thing to say? Definitely. So it really depends on how OCD shows up for the person because like in listening to Howie's episode, it seems like germophobia is like his biggest obsession. So for him, it might be compulsive hand washing. But if somebody has obsessions like violent intrusive thoughts or sexual intrusive thoughts, which are very common with OCD, you might see them avoiding things like avoiding knives because they're so afraid that they're going to snap and do something, even though it's sure. Oh, 100%. A violent intrusive thought means that there's a trigger that would launch them potentially, not definitely, into a violent act. 
So no, that is another misconception is that people with OCD are like the least likely people to act on these thoughts. They're so afraid of the thoughts that they perform compulsions to prevent them from happening. So I have clients who will lock knives in their car at night because they're afraid that they're going to snap and do something in the middle of the night. With a knife to someone? Yeah, even though it's the last thing that they want to be thinking. That is like really what an intrusive thought is. And it's so tough because, you know, I think conversations about OCD, especially like involving hand washing, it's a good first step in, but it doesn't encompass what like a lot of people with OCD deal with. Can you define for us what are intrusive thoughts? Yes. So intrusive thoughts are essentially thoughts that pop in that are unwanted. And we all get them. I'm sure everybody here, whether you have OCD or not, has had a thought where you kind of go like, oh, that was a bit odd. Like I thought about, I don't know, having sex with a family member. Like those things happen. For the person with OCD, it's relentless. The thought is popping in again and again and again and again. And it causes so much anxiety and discomfort. But how do you delineate if you do? And I'm not assuming that you have every answer. But how do you delineate between, uh, for example, using sex, a sexually intrusive thought, and a normal sexual thought? My point is, you meet a woman, you sit there and go, God, she's gorgeous. Is that a sexually intrusive thought? What's the line between the normal and the abnormal? So that's a good question. It really comes down to ego dystonic versus ego syntonic. Those are very like psychological terms, but OCD is ego dystonic, meaning that the person is so afraid of the thoughts. They do not want to be performing compulsions, but they feel the urge to, to either alleviate anxiety or prevent something bad from happening. Whereas a thought that you enjoy is egosyntonic. You align with that. So people with OCD do not like their intrusive thoughts and they do not like the mental or physical behaviors that they carry out to try to get rid of the thoughts or prevent something bad from happening. You said egosyntonic. Yes, egosyntonic, ego dystonic. OCD is very egodystonic and it's really painful and debilitating for people. Being the spouse of someone who is struggling, it's you it 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 hurts your heart mm-hmm. because from the outside that you see a rationale, you see but but why? But why would you do this or you hear the kids will sometimes say, "Well, why doesn't daddy just do it that way?" You know what I mean? And it's like it's not you have to understand that it's not so easy for for the person who is struggling. Yeah. And that I learned it has not always to do with things, but also, you know, from the thoughts, the concepts, and the overall structure of life, like scheduling, organization, when somebody speaks, when another person speaks. So can you talk to us a little bit about, is that something that for you fits within an OCD umbrella? Yeah. OCD can really latch onto anything. For some people, it looks like what I call, or what a lot of people call just right obsessions where the person has to like, let's say with this cup in front of me, they have to put the cup down and it has to feel right to them. Obviously feeling right is very subjective and it usually takes the person like 15 to 20 times until it feels right. That's kind of more so what you see with perfectionism or just right obsessions could be somebody having to walk into a store and it has to feel right while they're doing it, or they walk back out and do it again. Hand washing, another compulsion that like it sounds like Howie deals with. So those are the very stereotypical kinds of OCD, but it definitely entails so much more than that. For a lot of people, the compulsions don't have anything to do with putting things down in the right place or hand washing. 
I think what's important to understand is it's not somebody that can come, I, in my opinion, it's not me that can come into your life and all of a sudden you're, you're better. I can't do it. You have to do it. That's exactly it. The person has to be willing to do the work. What I would love to learn from you, Allegra, is what can be done. Okay, so there's these intrusive thoughts that can manifest themselves in many different, you know, ways. We can have many, di- maybe it's the more classic hand washing, mm-hmm. maybe it's violent outbursts, maybe it's stacking things, maybe it's hoarding things, whatever the compulsion is, physical movements, I think as well, right? Whatever the compulsion is, there's, it's, it's dealing with some kind of like trying to tame and push away these thoughts. What can be done? That's a really complex and good question. In terms of how family members can help, I think the first step is educating yourself about OCD. A lot of people don't understand how it can manifest and even what like their role is in maintaining the OCD. Because a lot of the times family members do, they accommodate by, okay, you know what? Alec wants this in this way. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to do this. And that is actually the worst thing that you can do for someone with OCD is accommodate it. So a lot of it, a lot of family members helping involves them saying, like, I'm not going to partake in these rituals. So can we get into that a little bit? Yes. Because I definitely have been doing that. Mm -hmm. I want to make sure I love him and I love our children and I want everything to be calm. And I think, okay, if I have this just right and this just right, and I do this exactly this way and this way, and you start, I start lining the shoes up. I start doing all the things because I don't want to see him in pain because it's not just so. When we love someone who is suffering, sometimes we don't know if we are supporting, Mm -hmm. am I supporting Alec or am I supporting the OCD? And I think probably eight times out of 10, I am supporting the OCD and not supporting him. And you probably didn't know. It's often unintentional. You know, parents typically or partners or other family members think the best way that I can support is by, you know, alleviating their anxiety and doing the rituals for them or taking part in the rituals. And I always say, like, if you love this person, the best thing you can do for them is to stop that. Yes, it's anxiety provoking and you see them in pain, but it's it's essentially you're going for short-term pain and long-term gain. Because when you cut out compulsions, you start to get better. Why? Because oh, so many different reasons. If we're thinking about, I think the first thing is that these obsessions and the intrusive thoughts are meaningless. They're unimportant, but the OCD brain is very, very hyperactive and makes us believe that they're important. The more that you perform compulsions, the more that you are telling your brain that these obsessions are valid and real and meaningful. So as you cut out compulsions, you start to rewire the brain and the brain recognizes, okay, I'm actually not in danger. I don't have to do this thing to be okay. It's the compulsions that fuel OCD. The thoughts are not the problem. Intrusive images or urges are not the problem. The problem is how we deal with them compulsively. So cutting out compulsions is a really big part of the treatment. What would you say are, to your in your mind, the most common manifestations of OCD, meaning people do what? What's, what are two or three of the most common things they do? Cleaning? No, interestingly enough. So it... 
It might be because of like me being honest about my story and my Instagram following. I think I get clients who typically have the more taboo intrusive thoughts, but hand washing is really hand washing or cleaning like with Lysol wipes, whatever it may be, is really a small, small fraction of compulsions that people perform. Avoidance is a compulsion. So a lot of people will avoid things that could trigger an obsession New moms avoiding holding their newborns because they're so afraid of their intrusive thoughts about them. Reassurance seeking is a compulsion. Uh, Meaning what? So let's say somebody has a sexually intrusive thought going to someone else and asking, like, do you think I'm this person? Is this bad? Is it bad that I'm having this thought? And the problem with that is that the OCD brain can't connect to logic. If someone could just come to you and say, like, Let's look at yesterday's episode. Howie, touch that door. Nothing's going to happen. And he said, oh, okay. Like he wouldn't have OCD, right? It's the doubting disorder. So reassurance seeking doesn't work and it fuels the obsessive compulsive cycle. A lot of people with OCD perform mental compulsions and that's a big component that is really misunderstood. Such as? Oh, so many mental checking, like people who have sexually intrusive thoughts will check internally. Like, do I like this? Do I not? Um, What do you mean? Give me an example of a sexually intrusive thought that is common. Sexually intrusive thoughts about kids people have. And it's the most terrifying, uncomfortable, awful thing, like the worst experience for the person. And they just like the thoughts just keep coming in. You, you can't stop them. And the more you try to get rid of them, the more that they stick around. It is the exact opposite of a pedophile. A pedophile aligns with the thoughts and knows like, yeah, I am attracted to kids. The person with OCD is so afraid of the thoughts that they will avoid being around children. They will ruminate like, why am I having these thoughts? Um, you know, mentally review past situations to make sure that they haven't done anything. How much would you say some of the more common manifestations of OCD are rooted, as in my own case, with something very clearly from childhood. In my childhood, everything was like, uh, I can't uh, give my father a bigger paycheck. And it was whatever the raft of problems were that my parents had, I couldn't solve them. How many people would you say, is that common that people develop OCD patterns that are rooted in their childhood? So it's OCD is very biological, meaning the person is genetically predisposed to having it. Environment can impact that and it can kind of contribute to the onset of OCD. But a lot of it is genetic and biological. So for me, for instance, I I mean, I see signs of OCD when I was a kid for sure. But I had anorexia when I was 18. And I think the malnutrition really like set off my OCD when I was 19. So that was an environmental factor at play. But I absolutely probably would have had OCD at some point if it weren't at that point in my life. We're talking about supporting the person versus supporting the condition. Yeah. So the question is, how do you have the courage to say, I'm not going to support the condition anymore. I love you. I'm going to support you. And I need to mother. So I need to support my children Mm -hmm. as well. And so how do you go from that step to the next step? 
That usually involves a therapist because the person with OCD has to have tools to be able to manage the family member no longer accommodating. So finding a therapist who specializes in exposure and response prevention is really important. And then what often happens is I will do family sessions with my clients and I'll bring in the parents or the spouse and we'll go over family accommodations and we'll either gradually cut them out or cut them out altogether, depending. So it usually helps to have a therapist that's working with the person with OCD and the family as well. So it's not super abrupt. For me, education has been so much because I think we, we, we look at people and we just think, why wow, you're just mean or you're just this or you're just ridiculous or you mm-hmm. know, we all get petty. We have those petty moments mm-hmm. where we just throw things out and And it really, when you step back and you take away the pettiness and you can kind of see the why and the suffering underneath, you can start to develop compassion. And from compassion, you get educated and then you can get into solving. What kind of medication do people take with OCD and how, what, what does it try to help? So I'm not a doctor, so I obviously can't give medical advice, but a lot of people do take medication for OCD and it can kind of help take the edge off of the obsessions. It's not going to cure you and you you still have to do the work in treatment. But for people who have really, really hyperactive brains, medication can help. Um, I know some psychiatrists prescribe antipsychotics, not because someone with OCD is psychotic, but I think that it can work um, for people with OCD. And it's often an important part of someone's treatment. I'm very, I'm pro-med, but I'm also pro whatever the client wants. So yeah, if the client doesn't want to take medication, let's do the work. Let's you know, try to figure it out. But it can be really helpful because the reality is that people with OCD have a brain that is wired very differently. Medication can be like, I'm carrying a 50 pound like backpack on that you're not if you don't have OCD. Medication can kind of like remove the backpack and put me on a more even playing field. Would you say that most of the people who come to you, if it's possible to sketch some little profile of them, are there people who have the money for that kind of therapy? And are there people, therefore, who don't have the money, who are struggling, yes. and we don't offer them those it's, services? It sucks. Yeah. I think typically OCD therapy is a little bit more expensive because it's specialized, and the reality is some people can't afford that. I have sliding scale spots, and I do low-fee group therapy, so I try to make it so that people can afford it. But yeah, the reality is that some people can't, and that's one of the barriers to getting treatment for OCD. There are so many others, like just understanding that you have it. People go misdiagnosed or just undiagnosed for typically 10 to 15 years. One of the most intrusive thoughts I can possibly uh, uh, guess is I, I don't have enough money to feed my children. I'd imagine people who live in extreme poverty must have some devastating form of intrusive thoughts in their lives. Possibly, but that more so, like if that's something that someone's actually worried about in real life, that would be more like generalized anxiety. So generalized anxiety disorder is when people are anxious about real life concerns, overly anxious because, you know, it's an anxiety disorder. So what you're saying is they have a right to be anxious. There we go. OCD (laughs) is irrational. That is the big difference is obsessions are irrational. The person knows that they're irrational, but they feel the urge to perform compulsions. I know that my obsessions are ridiculous, but when they're really loud, I mean, I have a doubting disorder, so it feels like, is this irrational? But 
like sexually intrusive thoughts, violent obsessions, blasphemous or existential obsessions, like you, they're very irrational. And the person knows that they're irrational. If someone's worried about poverty, that's probably like a real life concern. OCD is not typically about real life concerns. What's the difference between OCD and phobia? So they're kind of similar in presentation. Um, OCD is more like intrusive thoughts that are unwanted, whereas a phobia is usually like intense fear surrounding a specific situation. So that usually is like intense and irrational fear about a specific thing where, you know, the person probably isn't performing compulsions like they are with OCD. Mm -hmm. OCD has to have the obsessions and the compulsions component. Interesting. Mm -hmm. But they're treated similarly. I treat phobias very similarly to how I treat OCD. We want to do our part in destigmatizing OCD. What is what does that mean to you? To me, that means educating people about real OCD. You know, when I started having the intrusive thoughts that I was having, and it happened literally in a split second, I remember when it started, I had no idea that it was OCD because all we hear about it is that it's compulsive hand washing or people who like things just so. And don't get me wrong, that's really painful and that absolutely is a part of OCD. But that leaves out a lot of people who are experiencing other obsessions and have no idea that that is what they're living with. So the first step is educating about all of the ways that OCD can manifest because most people don't know. That is probably going to be the biggest lifesaver because OCD has a really high suicide rate. I mean, imagine if every day you're plagued with like the worst thing you would ever want to think that just does not stop playing in your brain. It's really scary and it's really exhausting. So educating and that involves educating therapists because I get a lot of clients who come to me and have been misdiagnosed with schizophrenia or bipolar disorder because the therapist didn't understand that their obsessions and mental compulsions were OCD. What's the difference between OCD and OCPD? Or oh, that's saying? a really good one too. So OCD is egodystonic, like we talked about, whereas OCPD is more egosyntonic. The person might have things that they feel like, like this has to be my way, but I want it to be like that. And I like that it's like that. People often describe OCD and what they're describing is probably OCPD. If someone really likes to organize their pantry and they want it this way and like they don't want people to touch it, but they enjoy it, that might more so be in alignment with OCPD. OCD, the person hates that they're doing it. They don't want to be doing the compulsions. They don't like their thoughts. So that's one of the main differences. And people with OCPD typically don't want to get treatment because they don't see what they're doing as a problem. They enjoy they, they it. They think it's great. Yeah, they enjoy it. They it's something but it, but it can still really mess with them. Oh, life. it can totally impact someone's life. Like if somebody is very perfectionistic and has these rigid rules that they, you know, want to stick with, but that bother other people, it can impair relationships. But it it usually is more in alignment of like, yeah, I enjoy this. This is in alignment with my self-concept. And it's also this thing. Where you 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 don't want other people to pin a medal on you, you want to pin a medal on yourself. In the OCPD world, meaning 
I'll arrange the cabinets and I'll be like, I put the pinto beans over here and the black beans over here. And then I'll look, and when I get it all done, I'll look at myself and go, that's amazing. That's great. That, you did <laughs> that would be wow. more so, yeah, OCPD, OCPD. Where people with OCD, like we talked about just right obsessions, if something has to be just right for them, they don't want to be doing that. They don't want to have this urge to continuously put something back until it feels right. That's the main difference, you know. The OCD community really, really um, was in an uproar when Khloe Kardashian, and I'm, I'm not saying she has OCD or she doesn't, it's not my place, but she did a whole spinoff kind of like show called Close CD in which she talked about how much she loved to organize her pantry. That's not OCD. If someone feels like they have to put things in their pantry a certain way, it is exhausting, it's painful, and they don't want to be doing that. You will never hear someone with OCD say, I love my OCD or my OCD is so helpful. People want a fucking new brain. They want a lobotomy. Like they do not want to have OCD. It's literally being tortured. It's, it's being tortured on the it. inside. It's it literally being tortured. Torture. It is torture of the worst kind. And it's, yeah, it's, it's honestly the most painful thing I think I'll ever deal with in my life. And that's saying something because I know that there are a lot of painful things out there. When you and I, we met the other day to, to chat, mm-hmm. you talked about calling people in versus mm-hmm. calling people out, which I feel yes. is extremely important right now where everybody wants to be, you know, upset about things. Yes. And so, shaming and, and you know, I mean, having these it. conversations, you know, having these these conversations, it's, it's sometimes it's uncomfortable and we get worried that we're going to say one word this way or that way. We're going to mess up and we're going to offend somebody. Um, it's a, and I loved, I loved what you said. So can you say that for everybody? Totally. So calling people in is really important as opposed to calling them out. I used to be someone who, if someone said like, I am so OCD and continued to use that word, I would call them out. Calling someone out doesn't typically work. It induces shame and it's just not helpful. I think the best thing you can do is call someone in to have a conversation. It doesn't mean that people are going to be willing to. You know, there are companies like, I mean, Target is really guilty of this, using OCD as an adjective to like promote their products. If someone's not willing to have the conversation, they're not. But calling people in and saying, hey, are you willing to dialogue with me? is so much more helpful and empowering than calling someone out and saying you're an asshole for saying that thing that maybe the person didn't know was offensive. I just want to say to anybody that's out there that's listening to this, this idea that this this self-abuse and you're really, really driving yourself, there is a way out of it. I think the idea that there's hope out there, I think the idea that when when you said to me the other day, oh, no, it's totally treatable. It is. You know, it I, absolutely is. Like, it just music to someone's ears because it doesn't it shouldn't be so exhausting just surviving it shouldn't be and it's so sad that it is for some people but it can get so much better with proper treatment finding a specialist who utilizes exposure and response prevention and understands OCD can be life-changing like I got my life back in so many ways I want to close myself by saying, oh, for, thank you, obviously, for taking the time. No, I really mean that. And I wanted to say that the reason that this was so attractive to me to want to talk to you about this, me personally, is that um, I want people to understand what I'm beginning to understand. And of course, everybody's different, not everybody's identical. But for me, this idea that I just whip myself with a stick all the time, all the time. And I just mm-hmm. don't have that ability to say, you know, to be my own friend. 
You do. Okay. Right. So well, listen, but I perceive yeah, but, that. Yeah. yeah but listen, yeah, I want to hear this. this. Yes. It's not can't, it's won't. And I always say that to my clients. Right. It's not that you can't, it's that you're not willing to. So you've got to work on that. Thank you, Allegra. We're so grateful for your wisdom and expertise. Alec, let me just say, I'm so proud of you for opening up. This is something that we have talked much about in our private life. And I know that it has taken a lot of courage. You were raised in a time and a place where speaking about mental health was discouraged. To be a part of this force of people who are destigmatizing what many people amongst us have is inspiring. I'd like to thank Allegra as well. That concept of intrusive thoughts has had a huge impact on me. My goal, our goal, is to teach people that this can be overwhelming, but I want to share with people that you don't have to be ashamed to seek help. You don't have to do it alone, and life can feel much brighter and much more free. Thanks for hanging out with us. Make sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And share the show with your friends and help us grow. We'll talk to you guys next week.